This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments about absentee ballot drop boxes tomorrow, reports the Capital Times. Earlier this year, a Waukesha County judge ruled that drop boxes are not allowed under state law. That judge also ruled nobody except the voter or Postal Service employee is allowed to handle an absentee ballot. This ruling occurred close to the February 2022 elections, which caused chaos due for those primaries. An appeals court temporarily allowed drop boxes to be used for the February elections. Wisconsin Republicans have prioritized banning drop boxes in the state. Supporters of drop boxes claim the boxes provided a safe way to vote during the pandemic and the ban would attempt to keep people from voting. Oral arguments for the case start at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. A Waukesha County judge ruled today that the State Department of Natural Resources cannot require companies to clean PFAS contaminations until they are officially deemed a hazardous substance. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the DNR does not currently have any definitive list of hazardous substances, simply stating that they are anything that can cause harm to human health or the environment. This ruling could have wider implications than just PFAS cleanups, however. Because the DNR has no official list of hazardous substances, this could open the door to halt all cleanup efforts overseen by the state DNR. The Wisconsin Attorney General's office has said it is likely to appeal the ruling. Fond du Lac County District Attorney Eric Toney is seeking the removal of five members of the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. Tony, who is also running for the state attorney general, filed a complaint requesting Governor Tony Evers to remove these five members, three Democrats and two Republicans, because they did not allow special deputies into nursing homes to assist residents with voting in 2020, according to the Associated Press. Legislative Republicans have pointed to the Election Commission's decision in their unsupported allegations of voting fraud in the state. It is unclear whether Evers would even be able to remove these members from the commission, as he only appointed two of them. The others were appointed by legislative leaders. The Wisconsin Elections Commission made the decision in 2020 when nursing homes were severely limiting visitors due to the COVID-19 pandemic and state public health orders. Clerks were instead directed to mail absentee ballots to nursing home residents who requested them. Officials at the Madison Metropolitan School District have outlined how they plan to spend nearly $43 million of pandemic aid funding. The spending will include updates to HVAC systems at schools, initiatives to address COVID-related school closures, ACT prep, and mental health support. These initiatives will not be approved until later this year, according to the CAP Times. The COVID aid comes from both federal and state sources, with this funding temporary and much of it expiring in 2023 and 2024. The Madison School District will release further budget plans later this month. And now on to today's top stories. The Dane County Sheriff announced an opioid treatment program today. The goal is to continue jail residents' addiction treatment if they need treatment while incarcerated. WORT reporter Heron Splinter has more. The Dane County Sheriff announced an opioid treatment program today. The goal is to continue residents' addiction treatment if they need treatment while incarcerated. The new program expands how Dane County Jail can help those in addiction treatment. The jail already administers medication to help people with opioid addictions recover, but it can't be used if a patient has recently used opioids. 
The new program makes an additional drug called Subutex also available to the jail. And this drug can be administered 24 hours after taking opioids. Here is Sheriff Calvin Barrett explaining how the medication can help at a press conference this afternoon at the Public Safety Building. Our ultimate goal is to continue the medications to help with their addiction so that they're not stopping cold turkey and having to restart back up once they're released. This is a small step in the right direction, but we all know if we continue to take these small criminal justice reform steps in the right direction, we will eventually get to where we want to be in criminal justice reform here in Dane County. Dr. Elizabeth Salisbury Offshar, an expert in addiction medicine at UW-Madison, also spoke at the press conference. In the case of opioid addiction or opioid use disorder, we know that medications like buprenorphine, trade name is Subutex that was mentioned earlier, um, have been shown to increase retention in treatment, reduce illegal drug use, reduce risk of death by as much as 50%, um, and reduce the risk of recidivism or reduce the risk that someone commits another crime. Barrett says that the program has already treated three people this month. Today's announcement is timely. It comes just one day after a decision to dismiss a federal lawsuit against Dane County for its failure to prevent an overdose death in the jail in 2016. It argued that the death of Shannon Payne, who overdosed on heroin allegedly smuggled into the jail, was unconstitutional and amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that U.S. District Judge William Conley dismissed the case on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence to show that Payne's constitutional rights were violated. I asked Sheriff Barrett about the timing of the press conference and whether he had the ruling in mind in announcing the program. No, absolutely not. This was the plan that uh, was just coming. Uh, we were going to do this at, uh, you know, it was just a random time that we selected. Um, we did not know of the ruling or uh, what that was going to look like coming forward. Sheriff Barrett also summed up exactly what care the jail can now provide. Depends on if they're receiving the care on the outside, we will continue that care moving forward. If they're not receiving that care, we can't. We're not in the position with our configuration, our facilities, or our staffing to really identify and prescribe them those medications. The sheriff's plan is to be able to prescribe addiction medication in the future without the resident being in treatment before they are incarcerated. Currently, the jail's only way to isolate and monitor residents required for those future prescriptions would it be to put them in solitary confinement. That's not the appropriate place for someone going through a medical emergency, and that's what we see this at. The sheriff says that the new medication program today fits into his plan for the jail's future as the jail consolidation project continues. For WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. COVID-19 tests and treatments are no longer free in some places across the country, as the Biden administration pleads with Congress to allocate more than the $10 billion already approved for the COVID relief fund. If the stalemate continues, it could come with consequences for people seeking tests and vaccines. WORT reporter Mario Sotomayor has more. COVID-19 tests, treatment, and vaccines are no longer free in some places across the country, as the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration has recently announced that, due to recent cuts in COVID funding, it will no longer be accepting claims for relief from providers. With the HRSA having to discontinue their uninsured program and coverage assistance fund, some health policy professionals are wondering about the ramifications in coming months for uninsured and low-income individuals. Bryn McBride is the Chief Operations Officer for ABC for Health, Inc. She says these cuts in funding could bring consequences for people in our community. When these funds disappear, then you have concerns about people not having to access, about not going to the doctor when they feel sick, 
And then you also have the impact on some of the safety net hospitals and rural hospitals where they do have a higher uninsured census and they were relying on these funds. Bryn says the cuts could bring consequences, even for people who are insured. I've been seeing politics rear its ugly head through this whole pandemic. Holding this money kind of captive at a time when the fund is empty, this HRSA fund for the uninsured in particular is empty, seems pretty dramatic. And, And health policy experts, again, nationwide have been saying, first of all, this is dangerous to the uninsured. Uh, second of all, it's dangerous to everybody because, you know, we are seeing a, a, this second Omicron variant that's popping up and we've got some higher case numbers in Michigan. We've got higher case numbers in California. And we know it's probably just a matter of time before we see higher case numbers in Wisconsin. McBride says that at-home tests from the federal government are still free and you can find those at covidtest.gov. Um, there are still pop-up clinics, vaccine efforts that a lot of people can take advantage of. Um, Madison, Dane County Public Health has been really great about updating their website of where vaccination clinics and boosters are available. According to the Wisconsin Examiner, the stalemate has also led to a drop-off in the number of monoclonal antibodies being sent to states. And if a deal isn't reached by midsummer, testing capacity across the country could be strained. Meanwhile, Wisconsin will soon reach a total of 1.4 million COVID cases during the pandemic. Today, the state health department announced another 610 cases across the street, the most number of cases in six weeks. Still, Dane County's community COVID level, as measured by the CDC, is considered low. Community levels can be low, medium, or high, and are determined by looking at factors such as hospital beds being used, hospital admissions, and total number of new COVID cases in an area. Wastewater monitoring, which can be used to forecast trends in infection levels before they otherwise become apparent, is now predicting a significant change in trajectory in the coming weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Mario Sotomayor. Although we have been feeling the warm weather in Madison, Wednesday will bring cool, stormy conditions into the evening hours. For a detailed weather forecast, we now go to WORT weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Here at WORT, we are still continuing to feel the warm weather that was felt throughout the day. Temperatures are sitting at a steady 63 degrees with wind speeds getting up to 23 miles per hour and gusts up to 30 miles per hour. With the lack of sun and consistent winds, it feels a bit cooler than the actual temperatures that we are experiencing. The pressure is continuing with its pattern of staying low, currently sitting at 29.79 on the barometric thermometer, but the pressure is on the rise. Humidity is sitting at around 28%, but will also be rising in the overnight hours. Tonight, there will be a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms with a continued wind speed of 15 to 20 miles per hour coming from the south. The wind will be carrying a warmer, more humid air mass northward overnight, along with convection that will keep the temperatures fairly consistent. The temperatures tonight are dropping to only 61 degrees, but will rise to 64 degrees at 12 a.m., which should stay consistent throughout Wednesday. With the small rise in temperature, we will also be seeing a rise in the dew point. The combination of the two means that there's an even higher chance for thunderstorms into tomorrow, but we will likely be seeing more prominent and consistent storms after 1 p.m. The National Weather Service announced that spotter activation may be needed on Wednesday afternoon into the evening. This means storm spotters will look for heavy storms and unstable real-time conditions and report them back to the National Weather Service. This helps issue timely and accurate warnings or watches if needed be. As the front comes in through Wednesday, Thursday will have a high near 45 degrees, again having the breezy west-southwest winds through the day reaching between 18 and 25 miles per hour. To keep yourself from blowing away, make sure you make use of a news anchor, as wind gusts can get up to 43 miles per hour for Thursday as of now. The cooler temperatures will continue into the weekend. 
Easter is predicted to be a lot cooler than we have seen since last year. In 2021, temperatures reached 75 degrees on Easter Sunday, and this year for Easter, temperatures are only expected to be near 45 degrees. With your WORT weather report, I'm Caitlin Davis. PM. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. An eighth grader in Fitchburg is headed off to Washington, D.C. after winning the statewide Badger State Spelling Bee a few weeks ago. It's Maya Jodhoff's fourth consecutive year winning the state spelling bee and the fifth time she's headed to Washington to compete in the Scripps National Spelling Bee. WORT News Director Shally Pittman chatted with Jodhoff earlier this morning. About two and a half weeks ago, Madison hosted the statewide spelling bee, and we're on the line with the winner, Maya Jodhoff, an eighth grader from Fitchburg. Congratulations on your win, Maya. How do you feel? I feel great. I'm really excited to go to Washington, D.C. This is my fifth time, and I'm really happy that it's in person again this year. So this is your fifth time winning the Badger State spelling bee? No, it's my fourth time winning, but I... I placed third the previous year, so that qualified me also. Oh, okay. So can you tell us what word that you won on? Obertund, O-B-R-O-T-U-N-D. Did you know that word when you were spelling? Okay. So you just have this kind of excellent memorization skills. Yeah, I guess. Well, let's talk about preparation. Um, What does practice look like for you? It takes a lot of work to know so many words and know how to spell them. So what what does your practice look like? Um, I practice using some online programs and really I just try to um, practice over over and over repetition. And then I also practice like root words and language rules and things like that. Yeah. How many hours a day is that? Um, On school days, it's usually about uh, three, and then on weekends, maybe nine. That's a lot of dedication. Um, can you tell us what, kind of what your motivation is and, you know, being really good at this? Um, well, when I was in the second grade, I was in my school spelling bee, and then I didn't win, but I got out and my principal told me that um, I was a future spelling bee champion, and that's kind of what got me interested and I've just kept doing it since then. And it's really exciting, and I love competing and everything. Wow, that's really impactful. Do you have advice for memorizing or practicing words, or advice for those of us who want to be better spellers in our own lives? Well, you kind of need to learn the definitions, and the, the definitions will help you remember the spelling. Um, because like Avratan, you can know that like rotare is like a root that means like round or like circle or whatever. Um, so if you know the definition, then you can think of the spelling based on the roots um, and everything in the definition. That's a really 
good skill to have as you're thinking about, you know, your future and maybe like what you want to do. Do you plan to use some of your all of this knowledge that you have about spelling and word roots and um, language? Yeah, hopefully. Um, I think I, I'm not sure what I want to do yet, but maybe I, I would be a writer or maybe I would be a doctor. And, you know, in like medicine, they have a lot of really long words and they use like Greek and Latin roots. So I think I might use those. Oh, yeah, that's smart thinking. So, so you're headed on to the Scripps National Spelling Bee, and I know you said you were excited. I know the COVID pandemic disrupted a lot of stuff. What was winning in the midst of a pandemic like? Um, well, the last, actually only last year was virtual, so they had a virtual test online, and um, then like a couple oral rounds online, but I think it was maybe a little less stressful um, last year because I wasn't there on the big stage and everything. But two years ago in 2020, um, it was actually in person, the B, because it they held the B right before um, lockdown and everything. So really, it was only virtual once. Okay. Well, are there other things that play into practice? Um, because you're up on a stage and you're in front of a lot of people and cameras. Um, are there other ways that you prepare to deal with that being on stage and, you know, kind of almost performing in front of people? Um, well, when I go up onto the stage, I just remember that I've already done all of the preparation and the last day of the competition is just to have fun and be calm and just do my best. So um, that's what I remember. Well, is there anything else fun in uh, Washington, D.C. that you're looking forward to? No, but I'm also going to Washington, D.C. a second time in May for the National Math Counts competition. Um, So I'm looking forward to that one also. Very cool. Well, best of luck in that competition and in the Scripps National Spelling Bee coming up here in May. I've been on the line with Maya Johnhov, an eighth grader from Fitchburg, uh, who is headed on to the National Spelling Bee. Congratulations on all your wins, Maya, and good luck for the future. Thank you. If you're traveling around Wisconsin this summer, you may encounter places newly named in the languages of indigenous people who lived there long before Europeans settled the region. One common place name is a slur on native women, and it has increasingly come to be understood as offensive. The U.S. Department of the Interior is seeking public comment on replacement names for those sites identified in Wisconsin. WORT reporter Catherine Garvins has more. The Department of the Interior is implementing a process to replace place names now considered offensive to the Native American population in the state. The department has identified 28 Wisconsin place names that contain the term and is seeking public comment on how to rename them. Chris Goodwill is the statewide tribal liaison for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and a member of the state's Menominee tribe. She says the term in question is now considered a derogatory term for Native American women either a Cree or an Adawa word that was mispronounced. And so over the years, it was um, a word that um, became offensive to Native American women. And I am a Native American woman, so I do consider it derogatory. In November of 2021, the federal government officially declared the term, which we are choosing not to say here, as derogatory and offensive and is implementing processes to systematically rename those places. Goodwill says the federal movement is long time coming. So this came about through 
an executive order that was, or a secretarial order that was done by Secretary Deb Haaland, the federal um, secretary of the interior. And so she issued um, the order saying that it is a derogatory term and that it be removed from all federal uh, geographic um, names and places in the country. Movements to remove the term from geographical features have been simmering in the state for decades. In 2019, the Dane County Board voted to rename a bay in Lake Monona to remove the term. Former Dane County Supervisor Tanya Buckingham Anderson represented the 24th District from 2018 to 2020 and was a sponsor of the resolution to rename the bay to Wekowik Bay. Anderson says that even though the Dane County Board passed the resolution in 2019, it was not approved at the federal level until this past winter. Goodwill says that with the creation of the order on the federal level, the remaining process should be expedited. The federal government is seeking public comment on the new names for the features. Those comments are due by April 25, 2022, and will provide ways to give your suggestions in the online version of this story. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call examines a free speech survey that the UW system was about to launch. Wildlife Weekly takes a trip to Wisconsin's Conservation Congress. And Radio Astronomy measures the distance between the stars. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, producer Hope Carnop spoke with news reporter Beth Shoup about a free speech survey that the UW system was about to launch but then postponed. They said that from what they've experienced and what from the other people that they know have experienced. Everybody has been very open-minded, both students and professors and faculty. And so they don't believe that people's voices are actually being silenced on campus. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. The UW system planned to release a survey to students last Thursday that would ask them about free speech on campuses. That survey has since been postponed until the fall semester. 
the Wisconsin State Journal and Wisconsin Public Radio were some of the first to report on the survey. The survey is also a major reason why UW-Whitewater Interim Chancellor Jim Henderson resigned last week. Henderson told the Chronicle of Higher Education that he could not, in good conscience, encourage any friends or colleagues to apply for a chancellor job at UW-Whitewater or in the UW system as a whole because of the lack of support from UW system leadership. The search for UW-Madison's next chancellor is still ongoing, with the announcement of finalists expected this month and the announcement of the next chancellor coming in May. Additionally, last Wednesday, former Governor Scott Walker spoke at a GOP Badgers event and encouraged attendees to take the free speech survey. He said that he believes that the University of Wisconsin and college campuses broadly are hostile to students and faculty with conservative ideologies. I'm joined today by campus news writer Beth Shoup to talk about this survey and how it's playing out within the UW system. Thank you so much for joining us, Beth. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Let's start out with some of the basics of this survey. What happened last week and what is the survey asking about? Okay, so last week it was announced to student leaders and some faculty that there was going to be a survey released regarding free speech on all of the UW campuses. And these student leaders and faculty were told two days before the set release date. So this didn't leave a ton of time for questions and things like that. And so all of these student leaders got together and they wrote a letter to the UW system asking for the survey to be canceled, but at the least postpone it to give time to answer all of these questions. The questions were mainly about toleration of different viewpoints on campus and have students ever felt that they weren't able to express their views on campus or in classrooms because of something that other students have said or professors have said or anything like that. And so this letter, it was effective and they were able to postpone the survey until fall of 2022. So you spoke with the survey organizer and the director of UW-Stout's Menhard Center for the Study of Institutions and Innovation. What did he say about why the survey was postponed? Yeah, so I talked with, his name is Timothy Scheel, and he said that this needed to be postponed because of how many questions were being asked and how many people weren't fully understanding the survey and they were just questioning a lot of it. And he said that there was no point in releasing a survey that people didn't understand. And he wanted to use the summer and the remaining time until the fall of 22 to address what he called an avalanche of questions. And so he just wanted to use this time to clarify anything that people were asking. Could you talk a little bit about the background of this center and what Sheil said in response to concerns about the politics of its donors? This survey is being funded by the Menard Center, which the concerns that come with this particular donor is that politics are going to be involved. He's a big Republican donor, and a lot of people are concerned that these questions are leading questions towards showing that conservative or Republican voices are being silenced on campus. And so he, whenever he was asked about this, he said that the Menards doesn't have any control over the questions. They don't have any influence over how questions are being phrased, what's being asked, that they're just the donors. 
So you also spoke with the president of UW Stevens Point's Student Government Association and the spokesperson for the Associated Students of Madison. What were their concerns about how the survey was being rolled out? They both were very concerned about the way that the survey was introduced because of the time crunch that they were put under. As I said, they were told two days before the release date what the questions were and that this survey was going to be released to students. And so with that, it just they felt that it looked a little sneaky and it lacked transparency because they were told so last minute that this huge survey that is has a high chance of influencing state governments and other things like that was just going to be kind of released on what they felt was a whim. And so they just felt that it was unfair to not have student leaders and professors and faculty be able to address their concerns with the survey because it was being released so fast and they were informed so last minute. What did the student leaders that you talked to have to say about the issue of free speech? Do they think it's an issue on campuses and did either of them support the idea of this survey? I asked them a very similar question and they both challenged me to find any accounts of actual political speech being silenced on campus. They said that from what they've experienced and what from the other people that they know have experienced, everybody has been very open-minded, both students and professors and faculty. And so they don't believe that people's voices are actually being silenced on campus. They believe that our campuses have been a very supportive place when it comes to different viewpoints. Uh, Shader actually mentioned how they're both Democratic and Republican clubs on campus that are very highly supported and they don't believe that this really is a concern and they wouldn't support the survey in its current state with the current questions. But overall, knowing that there hasn't been free speech research done in Wisconsin, they don't think it's a bad idea in itself. It's just not being done in the proper way at the moment. Were there any steps that student leaders hope to take next in response? So as I mentioned earlier, they've already began working together and they hope to continue working as a collective UW community. And so, like I said, they already wrote a letter that postponed the survey. And so they're hoping to continue working together to create change. And another thing they're really hoping to do is show that faculty and students, so professors and students, they're a group. Like they're going to continue working together and they're not going to back down from anything. They're going to continue expressing their opinions and they're going to make sure that since this is a survey that's going to affect future decisions, that students are aware of what they're being asked and how things are being done so that if the survey is released in the fall of 2022, that they know what they're being asked and how important their answers really are. So you also reached out to the UW system. Did they say anything in response to all of these concerns? So I, I reached out to the UW system twice. I reached out prior to the survey being postponed. And whenever I did, they declined my request to comment on anything. Um, and then the next day or so, the announcement about the survey being postponed came out. And I emailed again and they sent me a version of the email that Timothy Scheel sent to um, interim president Michael Falbo stating that the survey needed to be postponed and 
the re the reasons that he believed it needed to be postponed. But that was the extent of my communication with the UW system. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about this story? I just think listeners should continue following the progression of the issue. I know I worked on this story for a couple days and within those couple days, so many changes were made and so many things kept happening. And as I said, this is an issue that could affect state governments and it's going to affect students on campus. And so making sure that you're staying, you're keeping yourself aware of the topic and the way that the issue is progressing is super important and just continue to follow up because as I saw over the last week, how many changes were made, we have a whole summer until the fall of 22 where more changes could be made. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Beth. Thank you for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Our news podcast, The Student Dive, has a new episode featuring conversations about stories in our action project, The Identity Issue. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg walks us through this year's Conservation Congress for Wisconsin and why it's so important to wildlife rehabilitators. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Conservation Congress. It is something that we post about as rehabilitators on our social media and try to bring awareness to every year because every spring there is a spring hearing that allows the public to actually give input on conservation topics, which includes everything about Wisconsin's natural wildlife resources, everything else in order to promote a more robust communication system between the people that live here in Wisconsin and the legislators and those that, you know, basically have the statutory body here in Wisconsin. So what is the Conservation Congress? Well, it's the only body in the state where citizens actually get to elect delegates and then those advise the Natural Resources Board and the DNR on how to manage our natural resources. So some of those rules and regulations are set up as uh, you know, bag limits, for example, right now for fish or for deer or for hunted species, but also future generations, like maybe it's a land ownership or maybe it's a transfer of title, other things, and so many more different topics are on our spring hearing every year. And as wildlife rehabilitators, we are definitely looking at what questions are being asked, how something could be changing a certain law that might affect us as wildlife rehabilitators. And of course, you know, wildlife rehabilitators do have their own independent views and ethics regarding our natural resources because we've chosen our jobs and our occupations to work with those animals. And those animals, being wildlife in Wisconsin, are state-owned wildlife, right? So, you know, we are permitted to work with them and to help them if they're sick and they're injured or they're orphaned and get them back out and released. But that 
there's so many different facets of that process. You know, we need habitat for those animals to go back to. We want to make sure we're talking about population ecology and how our rehabilitation efforts are influencing the natural landscape, for example. When we think of maybe, you know, viruses that could be transferred, you know, are we, you know, taking an animal from an area of Wisconsin very far away and then reintroducing it into a naive population where there could be some sort of damage that happens, territorial interactions with conspecifics. There's so much more that goes into wildlife rehabilitation rather than just working with the animals. So we do think it's important to make sure that folks are aware that they have a voice in the the management of our natural resources. And so we highly recommend checking out the spring hearing, which awesomely enough is actually online. So did you know that you have a couple more days here until the 14th is open uh, 7 p.m. April 14th is the last time that you can put in input for the natural resources spring hearings. It is open and has been open since April 11th. And so basically, there are a number of different questions that are being asked, and you can choose and select which areas you might be most interested in answering your own specific questions for. Um, I personally like to answer all the questions, even if it has to do with fishing or other things that I might not necessarily actively do. But there are some questions that I think are specific to highlight for this year for the 2022 spring hearing. Uh, One of those would be the wolf committee. I think that's a pretty big one. It's a question on there. It's question number 20. Do you support a population management goal of 350 wolves or less in the state of Wisconsin? Well, that's really interesting. There's been a lot of controversy over the the wolf hunt, and their last estimate in 2020 was that there are over 1,100 wolves in Wisconsin. It's really hard to say for sure exactly how many of a certain animal are in a population, but they do lots of tracking surveys and aerial surveys and other things to try to, you know, estimate those numbers. But wolves, of course, are very special. They are not actually legally allowed to be rehabilitated in the state of Wisconsin, but it doesn't mean that we wouldn't see uh, an increase in injuries from any sort of hunting accident. So really anything that is being hunted in Wisconsin, there is always a chance that someone might miss or that something goes wrong. And then that animal is injured and needs help in some form or fashion. So so that's definitely one to vote on. Definitely take a look. It looks like it's going to be a resolution for uh, 36 county board resolutions here. Uh, a lot of people supporting that goal. There's definitely some about fur harvest and how different animals are being dispatched or caught in traps or additional ones about disabled folks being able to set up traps for certain species like bobcat and etc. Again, trapping, if it is, it's one of those hard rehabilitation and, you know, ethical questions. Like we know that there's a long history of trapping um, and hunting here in Wisconsin, but again, as rehabilitators, we're seeing those stuck in traps quite often. It doesn't always end up being the animal that you intend. There are, you know, traps out there. I know that, you know, have certain catch safes or fail safes for certain species, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen every year where we're seeing those animals stuck, not deceased in pain, you know, so those are really tough tough uh, subjects to talk about, you know, and as uh, rehabilitators, we definitely see the the worst of that, um, especially when those animals have not been, you know, appropriately dispatched. So it's it's kind of hard. It's a balance of like, okay, well, where, where do you kind of draw the line as a citizen about your, you know, ideals about, you know, hunting as, you know, a food source or as an activity or as a sport? And then what about the repercussions of that? And remember that wildlife rehabilitators don't get funded for what they do. So, you know, everything that is happening that might go wrong, if it ends up in our 
facilities. Um, we're just doing it out of the goodness of our hearts, trying to help those animals that are injured and not actually hunted maybe appropriately in some form or fashion. Yes, so there's lots of other ones on here, definitely talking about um, hunting contests even, uh, dumping, canoe and kayak registration. So if any of this, you know, if you're outdoors, you're a recreation person, if you care about wildlife, you may be a hunter, a fisher, that's definitely going to be a I think there's a lot of questions on here that you should probably be putting at least some input into. They are going to potentially legalize a certain size of, it's called size F shot for waterfowl hunting in the state of Wisconsin. It's not commonly sold, but it is apparently more effective than the smaller gauges. So, you know, some of these might take a little bit of research on your end. And then also banning dogs from hunting wolves in Wisconsin, which would require legislation. And I think that is something that as a rehabilitator at Dane County Humane Society, they have in the past, uh, supported that ban for sure, just because we obviously don't want to see dogs injured from hunting wolves or any other species in Wisconsin. So I think there are probably about 40, uh, 49 to 50 questions or so that are on this spring hearing this year. I believe the actual total number is 45, but you can pick and choose, like I said, about which ones you're most interested in. And so the the ideas and the thoughts and what you vote for, you know, go to, again, the folks that we have elected on that committee and then that conservation congress committee um, then goes to the rules and resolutions committee um, and looking for support for whether or not things can be you know brought up in legislation or changed there's some really good documents about the public input process that you can look at on the dnr website it's dnr.wi.gov and it can talk or it shows uh, some really great step-by-step you know what happens when those ideas come actually into practice and then they go into the committee you know who meets each fall and each spring and which ones are supported, which ones are are, um, rejected, and then how do those questions then move on to the next step? So it's, again, an advisory committee is a way that the community can really voice their opinion, even if it is just a yes, I support this or no, I don't support this. I think it's definitely very important so that people are, are participating in this legal process as uh, communities, as you know, the larger body, to do what we can best for the resources that are here in our state. So I really appreciate anyone that goes to take the time to answer those 45 questions um, for the spring hearing. All you have to look up is the Conservation Congress spring hearing. We'll, we've posted about it on our Facebook page for the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center, and all of us on staff will be participating as well. So. Thanks for listening. Uh, This is public input about Wisconsin wildlife through the Department of Natural Resources, something very important to us as rehabilitators and important to our community members. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly on WORT. Give us a call if you have any questions about wildlife at 608-287-3235. It's 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Previous editions of Radio Astronomy have explored astronomical phenomenon many, many light years away from Earth. But how are astronomers able to determine how far away these distant galaxies are? On this week's update, host Andrew Nine walks us through the process called Redshift.
Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight we're taking another trip to the earliest days of the universe. In a paper announced last Thursday to be published in the Astrophysical Journal, Dr. Yuichi Harikane of the University of Tokyo and a team of international collaborators announced the discovery of HD1 and HD2, a pair of galaxies detected at a record-breaking redshift of 13.3. But what does this all mean, and why are astronomers excited about the discovery? To begin with, let's talk about redshift. Redshift in astronomy is a convenient way to talk about how far away things are in space. For instance, a galaxy emits light at some wavelength. As that light travels through space, it gets stretched out due to the expansion of the universe, becoming redder in the process. When astronomers detect that light on Earth, we can figure out by how much that light got stretched out, and therefore how far away that source of light is. The degree to which that light got stretched out is called the redshift. Because light travels at a finite speed, the light we receive now on Earth from the most distant galaxies in the universe was emitted billions of years ago. That means that we see these galaxies as they were billions of years ago. By looking for the most distant galaxies in the universe, we can study the universe in its earliest days. Which brings us to HD1 and HD2, which are detected all the way out at redshift 13.3, which translates to just 300 million years after the Big Bang. Both HD1 and HD2 are also incredibly massive for their time, possibly weighing in as much as 100 million times the mass of our Sun, about the same size as the Magellanic Clouds in orbit around the Milky Way. If confirmed, these galaxies would be the furthest back in time that astronomy has yet seen, and they also pose some enormous puzzles. What Dr. Harikane and his team first notice is that these galaxies are incredibly bright. HD1 and HD2 were pumping out incredible amounts of ultraviolet light, which had since been redshifted into the infrared and radio. Large amounts of ultraviolet light are often associated with active star formation, with young, massive stars producing the majority of that high-energy light. The amount of redshifted ultraviolet light that the team detected meant that the galaxies were forming stars at a rate of more than 100 stars per year. To put that in perspective, a typical galaxy producing stars in today's universe might manage to produce one star per year. Alternatively, the ultraviolet light they detected might be the result of a supermassive black hole in the hearts of these galaxies. As black holes gobble up matter around them, the infalling matter forms a disk called an accretion disk. The innermost regions of an accretion disk can get searingly hot, more than a million degrees Celsius. Those inner regions of an accretion disk can also put out a lot of ultraviolet light. Whatever the source of all that ultraviolet light is in HD1 and HD2, it will fundamentally rewrite the history of the first days of the universe. If star formation is the culprit, that would have to mean that star formation was far more efficient in the early universe than it is now. Also, since hydrogen and helium were the only elements available at this time in the universe's history, these stars might be the long-sought-after Population 3 stars, the first stars in the universe. There is a lot we don't know about these stars, even whether or not they exist. If they did exist in the earliest days in the universe, they would be a lot more massive than the stars we see today, and could explain how bright HD1 and HD2 are. The only way to confirm that, however, would be with follow-up observations from JWST, so stay tuned for more information. On the other hand, if the culprit is a supermassive black hole, that would mean that we would have to reconsider the formation of supermassive black holes. 
One of the long-standing mysteries in astronomy is how the most massive black holes in the universe, the ones that have masses of millions or even billions of times that of our Sun, came to be. We know that black holes can merge with each other and form more massive black holes, but as far as we know, there hasn't been enough time in the universe to form the most massive black holes through just these mergers. Something else had to have happened, but we don't know what yet. HD1 and HD2 present a prime opportunity to explore these questions and others about the early history of the universe. However this story unfolds, we'll be sure to tell you all about it in a future episode of Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nye. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters were Heron Splinter, Catherine Garvins, and our newest reporter, Mario Satomoyor. Welcome aboard, Mario. Sophie Leahy wrote your headlines. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buggy Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.